0: You are locked on Warriors, your daily Golden State Warriors podcast. I am Daniel Rue, your host, and so happy to bring you your team every day. With a long break between the this series and the next, I wanted to get in back into doing Reddit mailbags with some frequency. Luckily, our Warriors was both the mods and the Peak contributors were very enthusiastic about it, got a lot of good questions. If you want to hear part one, went through a lot of different questions. That was yesterday's show, so you can definitely check that out using whatever podcast player you use. And then today I'm answering other questions, and there were some, I mentioned this yesterday, that were highly upvoted that I didn't answer because I wanted to look into them a little bit more. So this is going to kind of hit some of those, and then also some of the stuff that's a little bit lower that I I wanted to do or can do and anything else. And I'm just going to go until. I don't feel like I want to anymore, so we'll see. We'll see how it goes. And the first one is is one that I really did want to look into. So I can't read the username, but the question was, what's going on with Looney? The team just says he's out with a hip injury, but there's no timetable for his return. Should Warriors fans expect anything from him next year, or is this the end of his NBA career since his hips keep failing him? And The frustrating thing, after looking into this a little bit, is the answer is still pretty much, I don't know. Looney has a left hip strain. That's the the last thing that I've heard on it it, with any specificity. As the commenter said, I have not heard a time frame either, and I asked a few people and nobody really had anything there. I think it's a little bit premature to right off his career or anything like that. But it might be harder for the Warriors to be the team that takes the risk on him because we've learned a couple of things about Looney with his kind of troubles staying on the court notwithstanding. And I think one one piece of it is that he's not really a center. He's probably not never going to be stout enough to really make that jump. You know, Draymond is not, is not a tall guy either, and he has a no big wingspan, but Draymond's just, I think he's more sturdy. And of course, he's really smart and everything else so looney's probably more of a power forward and that's less valuable to the warriors just because you can find threes and fours a a little bit more easily in their stuff especially because the idea of and this ties in with second thing is that his jump shot hasn't been what some of us hoped it would be and that's not a final determination or anything crazy like that, but that is something to consider. My instinct on what happens with Looney, and this is my own personal instinct. This isn't. In, this is informed by the Warriors personnel people or anything like that is that what's going to end up happening with Looney is that before the option decision has to be made on his fourth year, they will send him to another team. And then maybe, maybe even before summer league, probably not though, but probably after that. And that team may be in training camp or something in that, that time, that team can make their own determination. Now Looney is probably not going to be determinative unless, you know, they get really, really down to it. The difference between his salary and the minimum salary is pretty small i think it's going to be about 600,000 off the top of my head so it's not like they're going to really need his money to clear cap space and if durant you know takes the less the lower money to retain teammates it really doesn't matter in that context so they could make that move at a later point they don't have to do it right away and in the summer the roster spot restrictions are are relaxed so that teams can bring guys on for training camp and cut some of them and everything like that. Warriors fans have plenty of experience with that. So Looney could potentially just hang around on the roster until, unless they find somebody. And the example of this recently was CJ Wilcox with the Clippers, Clippers traded him, I think it was shortly before the start of the season. They had actually declined his fourth-year option by that point. But I wouldn't be surprised if the Warriors did it a little bit earlier. It'd be proactive, and it'd also be good for Looney if they feel like he's not the answer. So we'll see. I'm optimistic that he can be good enough to be a rotation player at some point, but the problem is that some point might not be soon enough, and it might not even be on his rookie deal. So the Warriors have high enough stakes that I think it's probably best for them to kind of lean in that direction, but they obviously have more information than I do. So I openly acknowledge that in terms of his history and the, the work that has been done and needs to be done. So be worth watching, but that's kind of where that goes. Next question is from Gordon him, Gordo himself. With last year's team, the small ball death squad, or what is typically called the death lineup, was clearly the most effective lineup the Warriors could put on the floor. What do you think the 2016-17 Warriors best lineup is, and how do they compare stats-wise with the death lineup? So, it is different this year than last year, and there are a couple different reasons why. One is the idea that Kevin Durant is a very different player from Harrison Barnes, they don't have the continuity, but while it was a big concern early on, eventually the Hamptons 5, the death lineup, whatever you want to call it, ended up being the Warriors' second best in terms of net rating, which is, you know, basically that's how you, how well you score versus opponents scaled for 100 possessions. They ended up being the second best lineup the Warriors used with any frequency, or above 100 minutes for the whole season. And that was 23.9 plus, plus 23.9. The, the started, standard starting 5 was plus 23.1, so it wasn't that different. The only one that was better than that is a lineup that Warriors fans love a lot, which is... The four all-stars plus JaVale McGee, that was actually plus 32. So that's substantial, but not that huge when you think about the sample size being a couple hundred minutes, which is not that big. Partially, that's because Durant missed so much time. So you didn't really get those large samples. For reference, last year... The death lineup only played in 37 games, because if you remember, Harrison Barnes was injured, they dealt with a couple other things. They were plus 47, so that was a much better lineup in terms of that, but again, as I said, it wasn't a ton of minutes played, and there were just a couple of absolutely insane comebacks during that stretch. The one that sticks in my mind was the one against the Clippers at Oracle, where the Warriors were down, I think it was like 12 points with five or six minutes to go, and ended up winning by, I think it was eight or ten, something ridiculous like that. So, The lineup is certainly not as strong as last year, but when you factor in the idea of continuity and adjustment and everything else like that, I think that there's something to be held there. And also remember that last year's team was more aggressive in terms of the regular season, so those guys were gunning for it a little bit more. So I think that the defensive ceiling for this group is higher than last year. Iguodala, you know, is the guy that you probably think the most about in terms of aging, you know, because four of the five are are continuous. And everybody else is as good or, or better defensively, broadly speaking. And then... Durant has a higher defensive ceiling than Harrison Barnes. So I would really go in that direction. But against certain teams, JaVale instead of Andre Guadalla could certainly work. He provides a gravity as a pick and roll, roll guy that is really useful for the Warriors and that other teams have to scramble with. But there aren't that many truly great post-up guys and I think that's not that JaVale is great at that but that's really the weakness that I see in terms of that Warriors unit as a guy who basically requires a double team and can move the ball I mentioned this in passing on Twitter but there's this interesting thing that uh, because Nate Duncan and I did a did a kind of impromptu riff on the best play basically could you build a team of players on non-playoff teams that could beat the Warriors and what we noticed was there were a bunch of really good big men who made it. And you could talk about some of them are in bad situations, but also just that that's not as conducive to winning right now as good point guards, good wings. So anyway, that what that means is that there aren't that many guys that are just absolutely going to smoke you. Think about the teams in the playoffs. Like Rudy Gobert is a really good player, but he's not a post-up guy in that sort of way. He can be a good role man. Spurs have Powell, Marcus are different in those ways. I don't think Draymond's going to freak out that much in those kind of matchups, and then Nene, and then Cleveland, that's not a strength of theirs either. So I think that broadly speaking, it is the Hamptons five, and it's not universal, but i, I that's the way that I would go in that whole thing. I might have answered this. I think I answered the other question on this uh, from Toyn underscore Koss saying basically with limited cap space next year, who are some free agent veterans that the Warriors should target? I'm actually going to, I think I might have mentioned this, I'm going to do a series on this for The Athletic probably between now and late June. Should have some off days hopefully to be able to get some of that done. And a big part of it, though, is just who's willing to take that kind of a pay cut. That's how the Warriors got Zaza Julia, That's how they got David West. JaVale was kind of a different case, but JaVale was the last guy who made the team. So a lot of it will be just seeing who waits out the market seeing who wants the warriors money who wants to take a lower salary for a year i i I will though in those pieces try to pick out some specific fits but i haven't really gotten all the way into off-season mode yet so i'm gonna save that but i'm excited to do it and you you'll definitely hear about it here because i might convert some of that into podcasts as well or segments on podcasts is probably the most accurate way a uh, question from... That's uh, a long username. Uh, I noticed that during the stint KD was out, the ball eventually started to flow better on offense. It may have been because there are stretches where the ball tends to stick to KD. And then with while I'm all for him posting up, it, it, do you think it's likely the mid-range ISOs will get phased out next season? So basically, it's kind of asking about ball movement and Durant. And I've noticed the same thing. And it's not a surprise. Because when somebody has been not only in the NBA in a system that is more stagnant, but it's not like Durant's team at Texas moved the ball a ton either. The Warriors are a big adjustment. I mean, the Warriors, I talked about this in yesterday's show, they're the most cut happy team in the league. They do a lot off screens, they do a lot of off ball motion, they do all that sort of stuff. And it takes time to adjust to that. And it takes time to not only go from being, you know, like one of two alphas to being a part of that sort of a team construct. And Durant's game isn't always a natural fit with that. Also, he's a great isolation scorer. So I think that it will always be a part Of the Warriors, I think that you... And you don't want to eliminate it, but what you might start seeing, and this is where I thought the Warriors offense was going to go late this year, and to a point it's getting there, was actually what Kevin Durant did. If you go back and watch the fourth quarter of game one of the Blazers series, where whenever he got a small on him, he would go... And that was basically everybody on the Blazers team. He would go into the post, post those guys up on mismatches, and get a basket. And he was scoring regularly. And I think the Warriors can actually use that really well because you want to switch so many things involving Stephen Curry that having somebody who can attack that switch on the other side of it can actually be more effective than some of the stuff that Curry does, especially if he's having an off night. I mean, think back to the kind of shots he was settling for in a lot of the playoffs last year, particularly after the MCL sprain. I think that Durant gives them a viability there because if you switch that screen and put it big on him, usually, it used to be that the biggest benefit was Curry on that guy. But if you can do it either through a standard pick and roll or just through normal actions, if, if you can attack that instead, teams will get self-conscious about it. They'll start screwing up rotations and everything like that. So I think think there's a way to make it work that incorporates some of that. But I also think Duran is going to come back a little bit to what the Warriors do best and that it will. It just takes a little bit of time. And having this offseason, I don't think there are any international commitments in terms of like Team USA or anything like that could be big. And I talked about this a little bit when uh, Eric Garcia Gunderson and I did, our, did the crossover podcast with Nurkic, that the first offseason after a player joins a new team and has spent a year with the team. So not just like what Durant did last summer is the most important because they know what they're getting into at that point. And so they can train their workouts, they can do whatever they need to do with the knowledge of the role and the responsibilities. And Durant is going to be doing that now. You know, he could have had an idea of what the Warriors wanted, but the best way to do that is to spend a season or a partial season with the team. So I'm excited to see what they look like next year. I think it's going to be closer offensively to to the 15-16 Warriors than the 16-17 with some Kevin Durant flavor sprinkled in there. And I'm also interested to see how the rotation works. At that point, because maybe you want to think about things differently if Durant's doing that. And they've had some success with the second unit this year that they kind of stumbled onto with Clark and Clay and Draymond. And if Iguodala comes back, they could definitely do something similar to that. But we'll have to see. And so all of that's going to be worth watching. Okay, couple. I'll do a couple more questions. Just some good stuff. Somebody said, uh, "Which team is most desirable for the Warriors to play in a potential conference finals matchup?" So that would be around after the Clippers and Spurs. The Rockets already beat the Thunder, so that series is locked up. And then it's Spurs and Grizzlies on uh, in the other one. That series is three-two for the Spurs. It's strange because I would have said early on, you know, I, I I thought that the Spurs were a better team than the Rockets basically the whole year. And Kawhi is an absolute demon. He's been amazing in the playoffs. He's been way better than Harden so far. But the Spurs offense is very, very stagnant. And I don't think that there's much that they can do to really grease it up against the Warriors when you consider the way that they can switch and the way that they can attack. So the Rockets have a higher degree of variance than the Spurs do just because they shoot so many threes. Sometimes they're going to go in, sometimes they aren't. And the Rockets can play good defense. They don't do it all the time, but they certainly can. And I think it's more likely to beat the Warriors 120 to 115 than it is to beat them 92 to 88 because I just don't think the Warriors are going to score 88 points in that many games. So I think that's the way that I would go with it. So that would make the Spurs more desirable. But of course, the Grizzlies are more desirable than either of those because they're a worse team. So that's the way that I would really go. Then the other question, now for, these are from Golden underscore Bear17. Throughout the Blazers series, a lot of the Warriors' role players have been playing well. The great give a list to all the people you know. Which role player has the greatest impact on the Warriors' success moving forward in the playoffs? I think it's David West, because West is going to be used in basically every matchup, whereas JaVale, Pat McCaw, Ian Clark, they, their roles can shift around a little bit because of other options that are there, or because of the opponents. But David West, I think he has a part to play in all of this, pretty much no matter what, so that makes him the most important. Next question is from N-Y-M-U-S-I-X. After seeing a full season of Patrick McCaw, how would you revise your expectations for who he is now, and what he can become as he grows and matures? So if we're going to say from draft night, I think that I've been really impressed with him and his instincts, and instincts are a really, really good foundation for a successful player because as long as you work at it in terms of the rest of it, you can improve your skill level. And if you, those of you who've watched like Gerald Green or even, you know, JaVale at moments in the playoffs, the instinct experience part of it is a lot harder to, to get better at. And the, sometimes the players who don't improve by as much as you think, it's it's on that end. I don't think... McCaw is going to be physically strong enough, at least not for a long time, to really guard small forwards. He's more of a 1-2 guy, and I think that's a, a good thing for the Warriors in some ways. And a lot of teams don't have that, you know, traditional LeBron James type Three. So McCaw, I think he fits in well there defensively, can kind of guard the better guy, something similar to what Mark Jackson had Clay do. I think he can do that. He has more skill offensively than I thought he would, just in terms of getting to the right place and having a little bit of a little bit of moves and everything like that. And he's young enough that he can work on that a lot. I still want to see more improvement from his jump shot because something Warriors fans are probably very familiar with now, but every player who is not a center who gets minutes on the Warriors needs to be able to hit open threes. Corner threes above the break, really wherever it is, they can make it work, but you have to be able to hit those shots because those shots will come. And McCaw's, you know, he's confident. I think that he'll get there, but he still needs to improve a little bit in order to make it all the way there. And... I think that he's going to end up in a really nice place with the Warriors ecosystem where maybe he's good enough to be a starter on some teams, but he can be a very capable backup. And that makes him kind of a jack of all trades for the Warriors, because in case somebody gets hurt, like what happened in the first round, in case somebody's in foul trouble. And also the idea that he could work with some of their other lineups, because what the Warriors have that's very different from other teams is they have a lot of players that don't defend point guards who can run plays, who can run offense. Draymond Green, Kevin Durant, Andre Iguodala. So if Iguodala and Durant re-sign, having somebody who can defend point guards, but doesn't need the ball in their hands all the time is a perfect fit. And that's actually something that Ian Clark does well for the Warriors, but McCaw's a way better defender. And if he can become a little bit closer to Ian Clark as a shooter, I think he can work well in that role. And then they can just kind of figure out the rest from there. Question from PRN Meds. What's the scoop with avail being limited by his asthma? Is he being used well in bursts? Moving forward, what kind of workload is he capable of putting in? I don't know specifically really any of the stuff with his asthma. I've never asked him about it, but it does seem like he's best, you know, in that in those stretches where he's, he's in for like four or five minutes and can really go. And he's also such an energy guy that even with or without the asthma, if you're an energy player who makes a living running up and down the floor, if you're seven foot, you're going to be tired. You're going to get tired quickly. So I think he fits in better in that role. And also players who are inconsistent defensively, particularly, that's probably a better spot for them because there will be times, especially in the playoffs, and we might see this this year, where those guys are having an off night or anything else. And it's a lot easier to handle that if it's a backup, if it's a guy that you're relying on for 15 to 20 minutes a game, which is actually more than the Warriors are relying on him right now. It's a lot easier to do that Then if you're penciling a guy in as a starter, and if you want to get a better sense of this, watch the way that the Raptors have to deal with Jonas Valanciunas. Valanciunas is a very good player, talented guy, can do a lot of different stuff on the floor, but... His impact waxes and wanes a lot, and he's also not a great fit with their personnel. So that's another thing to consider. But when you have that with your starting center, it just totally messes with your rotations because maybe you pull him early, maybe you do something else. The Raptors have been trying a starting at center, trying to get him in as a backup, and it's working sometimes, not working others. It's a very hard thing to deal with for coaches because, especially when it's a five, you can't slide them anywhere. You can't play another guy at their position and move him over. Javel can't shoot. So I think that the way the Warriors are using him is absolutely perfect. And I never want a pencil in a guy saying what he's if you know, if somebody's succeeding in their role to say that's all they can do, but I think it's the best that anybody has ever used him. So I think that I think that's a good way of kind of putting it for them. Question from Genius underscore Envy. Do you think we will see more Curry and Durant pick and roll pops late in games? Wouldn't Curry screening for Durant work better due to Durant not being a very good screen setter? I don't think we're going to see that much more of it this year. That's just not what the Warriors do. You know, they're not really a pick and roll team. I think that it's very capable. I think that it's something that they can can go to sometimes. And the problem with using Curry as a screener... I think that he's better as a screener, not in pick and roll situations, but more in off ball situations because it catches people off guard. And also Curry is a pretty dirty screener. The guards almost never get called for that stuff. And it's a lot easier to get away with those off ball than on ball, because when when you're in the primary action, there are at least two refs looking at that most of the time. So... You see, even though you see all the illegal screens that don't get called in the NBA, it's a lot more likely in that circumstance. So that's why Steph's screening for Clay is so good and a lot of the other stuff. So I think we will see a little bit more of it, but it's not going to be the centerpiece of the Warriors' offense. But depending on the matchup, I think we could see some more of Curry and Draymond pick and rolls, sort of similar to the 2015 finals, where if they decide that it works and then using that to get into other stuff like mismatches with Durant, some open shots for Clay, that might be something that they end up going to a little bit more. Because as you noted, Kevin Durant is not a good screen setter. He is actively bad at setting screens. There are a million different reasons why that might be true. You know, he, he is not the thickest guy in the world. He might not enjoy setting screens. He might not have been really taught how to do that and reduce his risk of injury. Plus, you don't want to see him get injured in the first place. So it's a lot of different things at once. And I don't think that he he can certainly get better than he is right now, but I don't think he's ever going to relish it the way that Draymond Green does. So use what you get. From William underscore Homick, strategically, how would the Warriors deal with LeBron attacking Curry on switches every time down the floor this year? I think that the easiest way to do that is to just not have Curry involved in that action. And I think the Warriors are going to go to that a lot more because the Cavs don't have a versatile enough system. And while LeBron is shooting way better on jumpers this year than he did last year, I don't think they force you to deal with that that much. So if they want to use, you know, if they're going to put Steph on JR, if they want to use JR as the screener for LeBron. So by so be it. And something the Warriors do really, really well, and you can watch this in their second round series, because I think we're going to see a fair amount of this, is the Warriors have gotten a lot better specifically Draymond Green at pre-switching. So basically what that means is if you know that that the guy that Curry's guarding is gonna be in is gonna be involved in the pick and roll. If another player like Iguodala or Draymond Green recognizes that they switch out before the pick ever comes, and then that person does the switch, that's another way that you can do it. The Warriors are better at that than every other team I've seen in the league this year. So that's something to watch as well in terms of how they're going to manage these circumstances. From Carnivorous Shrimp, has James Michael McAdoo played well enough this year to warrant bringing him back next year? Would you expect him to get any offers above the minimum for other teams? I think he's a really, really low priority. His best role is as your third or fourth center. And so if a guy's your third or fourth center, you don't want to pay them more than the minimum, especially the Warriors, who are not going to have many ways of getting better. Coach Kerr trusts him. The coaching staff really likes him. So if he wants to come back for that, you can do it. In terms of what other teams offer, it's weird because like, every once in a while, I hear a murmur from somebody who covers another team that maybe they're interested or something like that. But... None, nothing materialized last year, as far as I know. Like, I didn't hear, oh, he turned down, like, $5 million or something to Join the Warriors. I never heard that. It's possible I never heard it because it just never made it out, but I never heard it anyway. So I think it's possible that somebody does. I mean, if the Warriors win the title this year, he'll have that championship buzz, and you never know who's, who's going to be intrigued with that, but... McAdoo hasn't to me hasn't shown enough consistently on either end to say, "Oh yeah, I can pencil that guy in for even 10 to 15 minutes a game, and I'm not going to freak out about it. And at that level, if you if you haven't reached it, considering how many centers there are in the league right now, and I think he's a straight five, I don't think he can play the four. So if that's the case, then I, I don't think there's that much of a market for him, but it only takes one team to think that I'm completely wrong on that. So I'm not writing off the possibility. I just don't see it clearly right now. A question from another long username. In lieu of Draymond, hopefully winning defensive player of the year, I was wondering if you could explain how and when he got so good at help defending. Uh, If I'm not mistaken, I heard Jim Barnett say he's the best he's ever seen at helping. So I think that's something he's been good at a long time uh, I I, rem- I seem to remember him being pretty good at that at Michigan State. He he dug into guys man to man, but you know with his role with Izzo, sometimes you would have to get over and help, and that's not a surprise because you need to have good instincts as a help defender. Draymond is a wonderful defender, but the other thing that really did help him in terms of that was getting in better shape and, you know, working, working to do that because a part of being a help defender is the physical ability to get from one place to the other. And so the, the trademark for this, for those of you who don't remember, you can find the video, the block he had on Damian Lillard was one where he was basically out helping his guy. And basically he chased Lillard kind of across. It wasn't a chase down block. It was a chase kind of chase side block. And he was, and and then he made the play. So, most guys can't do that, A, because of the recognition, seeing what's going on, and then B, most guys don't have the ability to get there and then have the length or strength or whatever you want it to be in that circumstance, for Draymond it's more length, to then contest the shot. So... I think he always had the instincts, or has for a long time, but then the capability to to reach and to know, to have the timing right, and to be able to physically get there, I think those are more recent developments, but he's been a wonderful defender from what I've seen basically his entire time with the Warriors. For those who remember back that far, I was actually advocating for Draymond Green to start over David Lee, I think it was a year or so before it happened, granted part of that's because I didn't think David Lee was very good, but another part of it was because I thought Draymond could add a different dimension to the team. And, you know, I'm not saying, oh, look, look at me. I was, I'm a genius or something. It was, I think in many ways it was more anti-David Lee than pro Draymond Green, but it's still, it's, it's still there. And and a lot of that was his defensive capability. I never thought he could shoot. There's actually some, I I asked Mark Jackson during that Denver series, his first year, basically why Draymond was shooting so many threes. And Jackson's answer was that he was making them in practice and Jackson believed in him and full credit to Mark. That was something I never saw coming. And while this year has been you know, an anomaly, or not an anomaly, but it's been the first year that his shooting percentage from three has actually gone down. It's still a notable development that has made him a much better player. So he has really worked on himself, you know, in in during this time. It's an interesting question from another one from Carnivorous Shrimp. What sort of role would be reasonable for Damian Jones to have next year? Which current big man would he do the best job replacing if they end up leaving? I haven't gotten the chance to see much of his D-League footage, but apparently he looked good down there. And what Jones can do that I think is interesting is... He has the capability defensively. He's going to need to get a lot better recognition, and a lot of that goes to just getting more reps and spending more time against M- NBA athletes, which is part of the reason why I'm a, a strong advocate for him getting a lot of playing time and garbage time, because even garbage time pl- NBA players are still NBA players, especially in the playoffs. So he can do that. But also he has a pretty good jump shot. I, I don't go to practice that much because it's not a part of my job description, though. I do enjoy being there when I can. Obviously, you only get to see the very end of it. You don't get to see much. But sometimes the thing that you do get to see are the young guys working out. You know, sometimes it's with vets, sometimes it's with coaches. And Jones has a pretty good jump shot. And so I think that part of it, He could be kind of like a poor man's David West. I think that's probably where his offensive role would be. He's not probably ever going to be the passer. David West is. David West is phenomenal and underrated in that end. Defensively, right now, he's probably closest to JaVale just because his recognition isn't there. But physically, he's probably kind of between all of them because he's more fleet of foot than Zaza. He's longer... I think he's longer than David West. David West has a crazy big wingspan, but he's definitely tall. Jones is definitely taller than him and he needs to get stronger too. So my instinct is that from what I've seen so far, he's probably going to be best next year to pencil him in as the third center. And the Warriors actually typically use three centers. So that's not that big a deal. criticism for him, especially when you consider their aspirations. They have a lot more footage on him. They have a lot more of a take on him. So they might be a little higher, a little bit lower, but that's where I would be. And I think that the Warriors will be able to, whether it's retaining or adding in two centers that are better than him. And I talked a little bit before about James Michael McAdoo. And if you see Jones at that level, then you probably don't want to keep McAdoo because you already have Jones under contract. He has a guaranteed deal and he could be better than that. I think there's a lot more ceiling left with Jones than with McAdoo for completely logical reasons. A question from Water Polo Player 12 In terms of legacy, assuming it's Cavs Worries Part 3, which player needs to have the better finals performance? I think it's Stephen Curry. Curry is in this strange place because he was off last year, you know, still dealing with the injury and people have really underrated his overall playoff performance in 2015. Part of the pro- process of working on the book was really going back at that. There's a stat in there. I can't remember exactly what it is, but it was like he scored 30 plus or 25 plus points in every closeout game of that, fi- of that playoff run. And he should have won finals MVP to me. But if we're talking about legacy, he needs to do that. And I'm wondering, it, and again, this is another thing about the book. I, I talked a fair amount, and I think that Draymond's Game 7 is really underrated in terms of everything else because they lost the game and because he didn't play in Game 5 because he was suspended. So his legacy could benefit a lot from that too, but I think it is really those two guys because they're the most, they have the most to gain. And with Durant, I don't think the only way, the way that he loses in terms of legacy is if he's just actively bad. So I, I think he might have the most to lose just because he hasn't proven it in the same way those guys have, but it's hard to say that, that he needs to have it in, the, in that way just because there isn't anything really baked in there except for, you know, maybe some disappointments in the Western Conference Finals and things like that. So my instinct is Curry, Draymond, Durant, but I could certainly see Durant in the two spot spot and i'm sure some would say the one but i don't think he's there yet however you could say for the next three years durant moves into the one spot just because he has to they have to win a title with him otherwise it's a huge disappointment in terms of that question from Case 21 who is your mvp of round one and then and why is it javel it is not javel it is draymond green draymond green was huge defensively consistently throughout even when the blazers were getting good shots he was still generally doing a really good job defensively. His only real weak point was I thought he was pretty bad defensively in the first half of game 3. He was missing, he blew some blew some opportunities overhelped a couple times. And bad is really by his standards, not bad by like Kyrie Irving standards or something like that. But the rest of the series, defensively, he was very, very good, provided huge blocks and huge shot changes in big moments. And then offensively, he was strong. You know, he had not only the five of eight from three in game four, but just overall, I thought he did a good job moving the ball and being what they needed on that end and not really bringing that much as a negative in terms of that. So I would say Draymond was the MVP. Also, you know, Stephen Clay had a couple of shaky games so they didn't really do it and Durant was obviously hurt so JaVale per minute was the MVP but overall because JaVale played so so many fewer minutes I would go with Draymond Green then the last question is going to be from KJ Castro if the Warriors were to make it to the finals and win it all who do you think is most likely to get the finals MVP and there are a couple of really interesting options here because I don't think that LeBron would want to guard Kevin Durant full-time And if LeBron's not guarding Durant full-time, he could put up some real numbers. But I'm still going with Stephen Curry, because Curry is the straw that stirs the drink, and offensively, he's so central to it. If the Warriors win the title, he's probably going to have some really big moments, just like in the in the Blazers series, you know, in the, in those last two games, he was huge in the fourth quarter Game 3, and then he was just massive in Game 4. And so I think that it's most likely to do it that way. You don't usually see defensive performance carry it. The other part of the argument for Durant, so I'm saying Curry won Durant 2, probably Draymond 3, is... Durant might spend more time guarding LeBron than LeBron does Durant, and if he does a good job there, then he kind of has this hybrid Curry-Iguodala case. The Iguodala, you know, obviously won the Finals MVP in 2015, and I think that part of the reason he did that was because he was profi- he was doing a nice job producing offensively in those games when he started, and then he was playing defense on LeBron. So if Durant can draw that responsibility more often than many people are thinking and do a good job and then also score, then he has a good chance at a two. And of course, that's a great story. So maybe that motivates some people as well to to pick him. So part of what makes the Warriors so terrifying is that they have that many guys that could be considered. You could say, sure, LeBron and Kyrie would have a chance for the Cavs, but I think it's really LeBron and everyone else. So the Warriors are the only team that that's left in the playoffs that has more than one player who can legitimately say, like they would have a really good chance of winning the Finals MVP if they won the title, and they have, you know, there are other guys that could really step up. I mean, heck, when they won the title in '15, all won it. So, lots to look forward to there if it comes to pass. Who knows if it will. And that's enough for now. You know, that's the, the whole batch of questions was a lot of really good stuff there. Apologies if it if it dragged a little bit, you know, it's just trying to figure everything else out. So appreciate all of the great questions from the Warriors Reddit community. And I, I love doing this and was very happy when I asked their mods and they're like, oh, yeah, absolutely do it. And so going to have that. If you have any feedback on the show, good, bad or indifferent, Danny LaRue NBA at gmail.com at Danny LaRue on Twitter going to have more stuff, of course, coming out. If you want to support the show, you can leave a rating, leave a review, also subscribe, download every episode. Those are big things to do with this and every other show. And I think what I'm going to do, this is the tentative plan, is that tomorrow I'm going to do kind of a Warriors fans viewers guide to game six of the ca- of the Clippers and Jazz. So the Warriors will play the winner of that series. Utah is up three to two. So will give you some things to look for in terms of tactics, in terms of rotation, and try to frame it in terms of a potential second round series should that team win, come to pass, all that sort of stuff. I think that's a cool angle. If I do it, I'll also write up a companion piece for the Athletic. So that'll go up both ways. Looking forward to that possibility. If you hear that and say it sounds stupid, let me know. I'm always open to input. It's an important part of this process for me. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. Ace is the place with the helpful hardware, folks. It's Ace's biggest LED light bulb sale of the year. Right now, buy one, get one free on our best-selling LED light bulbs. Our four-pack of LED bulbs is $9.99.